Now, in a moment we're going to pray and pass in review, but a bit more in preparation, just a bit more. If you never do anything with what we preached this week, nothing, and all you did was come and warm a chair on Sundays and Wednesdays and remain quite indifferent to the multitudes are going to hell. Your salvation is sure because it's not by your works lest any man should boast it was unearnable, unmeritable, and you certainly did not deserve His grace. Yet because of His blood, you have what you could not earn. His righteousness. You're going to heaven, my friend, if you're born again. But the question is, what are you taking with you? See, he says, every man's works will be tried, for that day shall try it, to see what manner thereof. It'll be tried by fire, a perjurer's, refiner's fire, the kind that burns dross, and it floats to the top, and you can scoop it off, and it leaves what is pure. One day we'll stand before Jesus. And He said, that day shall declare it. And if anything that you have wrought abides after the trial by fire, that is anything not built on gold, hay, wood, stubble, precious metal, precious stones. If it abides, then you will be rewarded according to what is left and not punished for what was burnt. For your failures have all been laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll not be punished. He said you'll be saved as of by fire. If you have no reward, it will be burned. And you yourself will be saved. That's why he went on to say in that chapter, he said, you are the temple of God whose temple you are. And if any man defile this temple, him will God destroy. He wasn't talking about you drinking, smoking, and chewing. And, and then this is his temple and you defiled it. So, buddy, you're dead. What he's talking about is you are one of those lively stones as a building of God. And if you falsely build that building through false doctrine cross-motivation, then your works will be destroyed. If you defile His temple, your works will be destroyed. But you yourself said you will be saved. So we enter in tonight. You won't be any worse off if you never do anything with what we've been preaching this week. Some of you are looking my way with uncertainty. You're thinking, if I leave, will I be safe? <laughs> we probably should go beyond prayer. We probably should go into intercession. Don't let me scare you. 
Matthew 17. And, and when we begin, it'll be with the 14th verse. And we're going to take this a step further into peace. We're talking about walking all the way into peace. And once again, if you'd ask me, uh, Brother Roberson, are you walking in peace? I would have said, does a dog in Oklahoma have fleas? I'm a faith man. What do you mean? Am I walking in peace? And that's because I did not have now to compare than to. And after 16 years of ministry, I have entered into God and sought everything. I have sought to grow close to Him and somewhere along the line He diverted me and says, as you love one another, is my love perfected in you? And He began to sharpen and hone and reveal the love of God to me. And then He brought me into a room of peace when I'm supposed to be burning out, possibly. I never knew a place like this in Christ Jesus could exist. I'm telling you, I never knew God could talk so much. All i got to do is enter that room. He starts talking. And I go through verses, and I never knew His voice was so loud. It's the most tremendous place I have ever been. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. And tonight, we're going to take another step out of every damnable thing Jesus said you're free from. One more step! Towards that peace on purpose. Just because you want to. Hallelujah. So when we pick this up, we're going to pick it up again this year on the 14th verse. Oh, and He's going to let us go further. My God. But Jesus was up on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. And He left nine of His disciples at the foot, the base of the mountain, and took James, Peter, and John. And He went up and He had a visitation. As a matter of fact, Moses and Elias appeared to him. And when James, Peter, and John seen this vision take place, they seen Jesus' face, that it shined as white as the sun, and His clothing, His raiment become white as light. And they got beside themselves. And after it was over, Jesus charged them that they tell no man, and he came down off of the mountain where the nine disciples had been left. And evidently, there was the father of a demon-possessed boy. And there's nothing that can get to the heart of a father any faster. And this demon-possessed boy and his father... His father had heard of the fame of Jesus and heard that his disciples and Jesus cast out devils. So he came to the nine. And when the father met Jesus, he threw himself down and he says, I besought your disciples and they could not cast, they could not cure this boy. 
And they had tried so long to cure him that they started drawing quite a crowd. In fact, a multitude was beginning to gather around them that they was putting on such a show. And this is what Jesus walked into in the 14th verse. Very, very carefully, which reads this way. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic. He's sore vexed. He's demon-possessed. And oft times he falleth into the fire, and oft times he falleth into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, Oh, you faithless and perverse, you backwards generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? How long am I going to have to do this for you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and it departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart. 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 And said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, because of your unbelief. For truly, I say unto you, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove. And are you ready for this? What kind of verse is this? And nothing... And nothing shall be impossible unto you. Now what are we going to do? What are we going to do with a verse like that? Huh? Continue to sit in religious circles and admire it? You know, what are we going to do with a verse like that? And verses like these. The works that I do, you will do also, and greater works than these, for I go to the Father, much less this one. And what are we going to do with verses like, you could say to this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and if you doubt not in your heart, you'll have what you say with your mouth, and what things you ever desire when you pray, believe, and you receive them, you shall have them. My God, I've admired verses like that as long as I can remember. But to be quite frank with you, these verses were never very close to me. It's something that you shift over here into kind of a no man's land situation. You can admire them and preach them. And they cause the hair to stand up on the back of your neck. But when it comes to reality, nobody can hardly claim them. 
yet he has the audacity to say and nothing nothing should be impossible to you this wasn't written for the twelve apostles it, it wasn't written for the generation that they lived in it wasn't written for the hundredth year century that followed the word of God it wasn't written for the fourth century the fifth the twelfth the sixteenth the eighteenth the nineteenth these verses were written for any child of God anywhere in Calcutta, India, in a back alley, whoever picked it up and read it. And as I entered into this room of peace and became saturated by the Lord Jesus Christ, some of the first realities that hit me when He began to bathe me in His love, that in Him, in Him, you hear me? Not very much in religion, but in Him, for the first time in my life, I begin to sense, even though it was a little far away, but sense a reality that was, that was moving towards me. And I've seen the possibility of that verse. And nothing should be impossible to you. Nothing. And when he started opening this thing up, I would have done exactly the same thing that the disciples did. Do you think that if Jesus yelled over the head of a crowd, you perverse and backwards generation, how long am I going to have to cast devils out for you? Do you think that I would have yelled back over the head of the crowd? Well, why couldn't I cast it out? Because he would have yelled back over the head of the crowd, Roberson! <laughs> because of your unbelief. So I would have done the same as they did. I would have pulled him apart privately because he had a way of answering your question. <laughs> you ask it publicly, he answer it publicly. You ask it privately, he answered it privately. And they wanted to know privately because after he called me backwards and perverse and all them kind of things, I'd just rather you keep it between me and him. Yeah. Especially if I was his mighty staff that had just failed. You know? I'm going to keep this between me and him. And he got him privately, and he said, because of your unbelief, my God, something went off on the inside of me. He started talking to me. The Holy Ghost started revelating in my spirit. I knew that if I could ever isolate and identify this particular kind of unbelief that he was talking about and eradicate it, that I would become one of those that he said, that absolutely nothing, nothing should be impossible to you. You don't think, you don't think 
that I pulled that chapter out and, and pitched a tent and drove my stakes and, and started camping. I wanted to find out what kind of unbelief he was talking about that I'd have to deal with. Buddy, it must be some super kind of unbelief. It must be the most subtle, the most deceptive kind of unbelief that ever lived because the opposite of it is nothing. Should be impossible to him that believeth. Why, if I ever isolate that particular kind of unbelief he's talking about, I'll just bet you anything that I'd be looking right smack in the face of Satan himself. So I said, what kind? As he began to open this up, I realized a few things. It must be one of the most subtle kind of unbeliefs imaginable to mankind. The kind that religious lives in. I mean, religion. Religion lives there. Must be one of the most subtle kind. A kind that most of the time we don't even know that we have. Because we have consented to accept things the way they are. And not bring the change that he could with such impossible verses such as, and nothing should be impossible to you. If you'd ask me if a man could pastor a church of 700,000, I'd say no. But Yangi Cho said, yes. It must be the subtlest kind, the kind that a person doesn't even know they have. I mean, why would the disciples say, why couldn't we cast that devil out? Why couldn't we cast it out if they knew why? I mean, is there any use at asking you if I already know the answer? Why bother ask? They ask because they didn't know. Do you think they didn't turn their self inside out when they prayed for that boy? They didn't know why he wouldn't come out. That's why they ask. And he said, he said, because of your unbelief, and listen, one of the first steps to revival in your own personal life is to refuse to accept things the way that they are. And if Jesus said, it's because of my unbelief, then it's because of your unbelief. <laughs> and when I ask Him to give me a comparison, to give me a comparison, let me tell you what unfolded in my spirit. If you had a bunch of kids over here in the corner in wheelchairs, let's say from three to six years old, so we cannot shift the responsibility upon them. Three to six years old. I mean, every deformity. Little kids just depraved, messed up, demon-possessed, deformed, slobbering, eyes crossed, out of touch with reality. Let's put 20 of them over there. And you probably go to the place where they keep them and get 20 in your city alone. 
and stick them over in that corner. And my little Tawny, my little Tawny, my little girl, whom I've nicknamed Jabber Jaws, because she has four brothers, and her oldest brother's 22 years old, and I can testify to the fact that little Jabber Jaws has already said more in her short four years than all the rest of them put together. Say, God. Little Jabber Jaws' body is so active that I do believe it moves at the speed of thought. I never had a little girl before. They're different. And they are different. And she'll jump up on my lap and sit there and pull the fat on my face, you know. Yeah. Daddy, daddy, huh, huh, daddy, daddy. And she'll ask me five questions before I can get five words out answering the first one. She's so active that her little mind will shift. And all of a sudden, she's running across the room, picking up a toy, dancing around, you know. Then comes running back over, and it's almost at the speed of thought. She'll think of this, her little body. Man, four-year-old spirits are so active. They're so active. I cannot even begin to conceive. It's beyond my thinking, and it, it has hurt me so bad over the years to see... Twenty kids from three to six imprisoned in their own bodies. Yet to have their little three and four and six-year-old spirits to be just as active as my little Tawnies, only they can't do anything about it. And I've seen them little kids introvert and go inwardly and just bang their head and bang their head if that's the only part of them that would move. But do you think that I would go over into this wheelchair section and lay hands on all those little kids without reaching on the inside of me and turning everything that exists in there inside out. You don't think I'd reach down and pull for every fiber and ounce of faith that's in me to see them healed? What's the best way? Form a, a special section and get up here and remain indifferent and carry on a ministry? For me to reach inside of me and pull everything out and none of them jumps up out of the chair and to walk out and say, I don't know. I don't know. Say, I don't know why. And then have the door open and Jesus come walking in in His glorified body. And walk up front and stand behind the pulpit. And I get a chance to ask Him any question I want. I'd ask Him the same ones that they ask. I'd say, Jesus, Jesus, uh, when I run over there and laid hands on them 20 kids, it, it just wasn't your will to heal them, was it? He said, I'll show you my will. And he'd walk over and empty him. Then he'd come back. 
And I'd say, well, if it was your will to heal them, I'd like to know one thing, Jesus. One thing. Why couldn't I cast them out? Didn't you want to heal them through me? Yes. And why couldn't I cast them out? And he'd look me straight in the eye and he would give me the same answer that he gave them. Are you man enough to take it? Exactly the same answer. He would say, because of your unbelief. But I do know this one thing about my Jesus. He will never ever outline a problem without outlining an answer. (laughs) And when it dawned on me that he would have told me in person not one thing different than what he told them in person that day, I realized We must be missing something. We've got to be missing something. So I pitched my tent, drove the stake cords real deep, moved in on that chapter until I could understand the subtle kind of unbelief he was talking about and more than understand it, take the first step to eradicating it. Because, buddy... If you can deal with it, he said nothing. Absolutely nothing. I didn't write this. This is the Word of God. He said nothing. Absolutely nothing would be impossible to you. Nothing. Can I make my point? Nothing, even to the winning of a city. Nothing. So when I started meditating this, he summed it up and showed me where I had been in error and why I kept missing it. In fact, look at verse 21. The word how be it is an analytical word. He analyzed the whole situation, their unbelief, the use of it, their attempt to use faith. He analyzed all of it and said, how be it or how is this? Then he said, this kind goeth out by nothing but what? Prayer and what? Oh, we better think about this one for a minute. This could hurt. (laughs) He said, This kind goeth not but by prayer and fasting. And the prayer he's talking about certainly couldn't be the prayer they uttered over the demon-possessed. Boy, that one didn't work. Of course, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. He's got to be talking about a lifestyle. A lifestyle. He said, this kind cometh not but by prayer. And then he put an and. And then he added something that us faith people don't know a whole lot about. Prayer and 
fasting. Now the teachers told me that they would consent to fasting enough to know that it was probably necessary for Roberson's ministry because Roberson dealt in demon deliverance. Not the bucket foaming kind. The real stuff. In Brazil, when those 3,000 preachers was there, one girl of one of the families was demon-possessed. And I walked over. She looked normal. I wondered why God said, lay your hand on her. I reached up to touch her. She threw her arm up, dove up under the chairs, and started crawling up through the preachers. And they were getting out of the way. And I jumped on the back of a chair and intercepted her when she came out and says, Come out! And she went dead. Some of them started to head her way. I said, leave her alone. He's coming out. She laid there dead like for 45 minutes. And Bernard Stelgrove, that he says, when we reached up to touch that girl, that that devil threw her arm up and the eyes were shrieked with horror and terror as he threw her underneath the chairs. It didn't do any good. Devil came out. Then she wanted to hug me and Bernard. Talk about a tender moment. She hugged both of us. Totally set free. She hugged both of us. We didn't even need any buckets. (laughs) Hallelujah. Glory to God. Well, you're a deliverance ministry. You need, you, you need fasting. Because he said, how be it this kind? There's some big devils out there that aren't going to come out unless you fast. Jesus did not just equate the deliverance of that demon-possessed boy to fasting. My friend, he equated the removing of your mountain For the next verse, he says, For if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, cast forth to yonder place. And he said, It should obey you, and nothing should be impossible. He just didn't equate fasting to demon deliverance, little saints. He equated it to the moving of your mountain. That thing that's resisting you, the thing that kept your life like it is for the last five years and will keep it like it is for the next five unless you break the ceiling. What makes it so sad? Some of us don't even care. So he equated fasting to the moving of the mountain. So fasting has absolutely nothing to do with God. And it has even less to do with the devil. Well, I'm going to fast until it moves God. You silly child. He set himself in motion concerning your covenant 2,000 years ago. He delights. He charges into your life. He delights. 
in answering your prayer. It's His pleasure to give you keys to the kingdom that unlocks the tremendous things of redemption. He pleasures in it. He loves it. It makes His day. He's your Abba, Father. What do you mean you moved Him? Fasting doesn't move God. He's not the one stuck. When the Israelites fasted that their voice might be heard on high, it didn't work. But I'll tell you what fasting will do. It will move you into a place to hear His voice on low. Well, I fasted for seven days and prayers I prayed a year ago came to pass. And you telling me I didn't move God? I'm telling you, you didn't move God. You unstuck yourself, you outfit. (laughs) You dealt with the problem. The problem being the one who possessed the unbelief. And see, we're not going to do anything with fasting. Now, we've talked about prayer for a few nights. And to tell you the truth, I'd have rather stayed on it. He wouldn't let me. He said, now you've got to give the brother to this sister. And fasting's the big brother. He would not just let me stay on prayer as much as I want to. I said, well, Lord, if fasting has that much to do with, with dealing with that most subtle, deceptive, horrible kind of unbelief, the kind that ceilings our life, the kind we don't even know we have, if you ask us, why aren't you doing better this year? We said, I can't tell you. I have tried everything I know. And I said, Father, I'm not going to get people to fast in this last decade unless I can understand more about it. How can fasting deal with that kind of horrible, devastating unbelief? What does going without food have to do with anything? Is it the sacrifice that pleases you? Is it going without eating? No, no. He said, obedience. Obedience is better than sacrifice and to listen, to hearken than the fat of rams. It's not the sacrifice of you starving. God would like it to keep my bones fat and me happy and still be able to answer every prayer I pray. Unfortunately, because of my background, I was not in that condition. But fortunately, we come in some place that we never be in. You hearing me? So in order for people in this last decade to do the kind of prayer and fasting that you would have them do, that would deal with that kind of unbelief, that would cause the kind of faith to be released in our cities where we could boldly say when we stand in His presence on that day, I was one of those to whom you said all things were possible to him that believeth. And what is fasting got to do with this? 
How come when I fast, it devastates unbelief so severely? Why? My God, when He started opening this up. My God. Go to Romans 8 and 10. What does fasting have to do with unbelief? I don't think there's any people on the face of this earth that knows more about substitution and identification truths than us faith people. Kenyon published in the 30s his great identification books. He was made sin as my substitute. And I am now identified with his righteousness. He bore my sicknesses and carried my pains. And I identify with His help. He went to hell. I go to heaven. Nobody knows more about substitution and identification truths. Especially positional truths concerning my spirit man. I have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. And I have been seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Who know more with the publishings of Kenyon in the 30s and Hagen paralleling it in the 40s and 50s without reading the Kenyon book. And then Copeland coming on the scene and becoming a gladiator and a champion of identification. Nobody knows. We all dragging our little tape bags around. Finding out at last we are the righteousness of God in Christ. Hallelujah. But even though us faith people knew more about substitution and identification truths than anyone alive, it seemed like we knew less about the position the flesh has been declared than anyone alive. So it didn't take long for the devil to move in and corral the camp. And pretty soon, this one is running off with this one. And this one is adultering with this one. This one is fornicating with this one. And this one is adultering with this It just took the devil a while to corral the thing because we did not understand the position our flesh has been declared. Now, I don't mind telling you, meditating the Word, praying in the Holy Ghost, confessing the Word, praying the Word, they all enforce the position my spirit has been declared, which is alive and well and seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. But how about your body? How about the position it's been declared? Look at this 10th verse. If Christ be in you. How many of you have Christ in you? Raise your hand. Then this is present tense. You qualify. I'm reading this to you. But I don't like it. It doesn't make any difference. (laughs) Well, if the Word says it, I believe it. And it's so wrong. No, wrong. This is not a democracy. (laughs) If the Word says it, it's so whether you put your two cents in or not. (laughs) He didn't ask you for your vote. (laughs) And if Christ be in you, present tense, 
The body's dead because of sin, and the spirit is L-I-F-E, life, because of righteousness or right standing. It has been declared in Christ Jesus. If he's in me, my spirit is life. He didn't say alive. People in hell are alive. He said life, the Zoe, God kind, seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Life, it has entered into the express image of Jesus Christ. Life, if Christ be in me, and he is. Notice what he said about my body. In the same verse, he declared my spirit life. Look, he said, if Christ is in you, the body is D-E-A-D, dead because of sin. I don't know if you know this or not, but it's irrelevant whether you're wearing that body or you died 200 years ago and your spirit is dancing around heaven and your body has decayed. It's irrelevant. Positionally, the thing's been declared the same position. D-E-A-D, dead, and waiting on the sound of the trump. Well, Brother Roberson, it's, it's certainly not dead. It wants to sin and do everything else. Because it's not dead, like you said. No, that's why the sixth verse says, Reckon yourself, I mean, sixth chapter says, Reckon yourselves indeed to be dead to sin and alive unto Christ Jesus our Lord. Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body. Why would he have to say, Don't let it reign, if there wasn't a capacity there for it to reign? So when he declared the thing positionally dead, he says, reckon it to be dead indeed to sin, meaning, although it has a capacity to sin because of what it inherited from Adam, positionally, positionally, as far as the power that's in it to dominate your spirit, he has given you a positional truth that says, it has been rendered powerless and dead to dominate your spirit. Alright, if praying in the Holy Ghost and meditating the Word, praying the Word, executes the position my spirit's been declared, what executes the position of death my body's been declared concerning the lusts, carnality, and the fears, and the torments, and even the works of the flesh of heresies, which is false doctrines. I mean, if I can execute positional truth by praying in the Holy Ghost, what can I do to execute the positional truth of declaration of death? I think some of you have guessed it. You ever heard of fasting? Fasting enforces the position your body's been declared. Dead concerning its dominance over your spirit. It enforces it. If I took Louise, stuck her in an iron room where she couldn't eat her way out, and put her on a hundred and twenty-day fast on distilled water and slipped her an envelope of distilled water under her door every day while Louise would so mortify her body. (laughs) She would so put it to death it would never bother her again. 
It would never rise up in rebellion against anything the Holy Spirit's doing ever, ever, ever again. In fact, she would be so free from the dominance of her flesh that her inner man would be dancing the annals of heaven with Jesus while the funeral went on down here. Now the only time a man will brag about fasting it's when he esteems it a sacrifice. If you don't esteem it a sacrifice, but it's something that you will run to because of the hunger on the inside and you know that you have found another tool that will release everything that Christ is in you, the hope of glory in a destitute, backwards and perverse generation. Do you hear me? Something amazing begins to happen. The flesh will dominate your, your spirit with lust, greed, unbelief, carnalities, strives, hatreds, malices, self-exaltation, and your poor spirit is down here dominated by all of this and all of a sudden somebody preaches a message that injects enough hunger in you where you thinking I'm going to go ahead and fast a few days and when you do the death sentence begins to set in and mortification the execution of positional truth starts taking place in the flesh the dominance starts dying in the same time prayer and fasting you praying in the Holy Ghost and your spirit's coming higher and they lock level and all of a sudden your spirit starts gaining the dominance and prayers start pouring in answered why I'm so hungry I'm so grateful to my Father that He has had mercy on me. I'm so grateful. I could not be a man condemned to live my life out with this insatiable hunger and not know how to quench it. That is a fate worse than death. And He has had mercy on me. Yes. We know it executes a positional truth of death. But how? How does it put these forces of the flesh to death and allow your spirit to soar? How? Let's go to the fasting chapter. Isaiah 58. For he that hungers and thirsts after righteousness shall be filled again and again and again. For I'll pull him into myself 
and feed his spirit with the heritage of Jacob, saith the spirit of grace. And I will repair their breaches and fill the empty spaces. And they shall call, and I, the Lord their God, shall say, Here I am, and nothing shall be impossible to these children of mine, saith the spirit of grace. <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Looking at the sixth verse of Isaiah 58. Looking at 58. And the sixth verse of Isaiah. Is not this the fast that I have chosen? Is not this the fast that I have chosen to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? And isn't it strange how we always want to put that yoke on somebody else? That you break every yoke? What are we talking about? Oh, he went further. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out of thy house? When thou seest the naked, that you cover him, and that you hide not yourself from thine own flesh? You know, here's the part I did not understand. I said, Lord, I understand this is the fast that you have chosen to break every yoke. And we always tend to think to break the yoke off of other people. But you went on to say, is it to deal your bread to the hungry? Is it to clothe the naked? And those that are cast out that you bring them into the house of God. And I heard people teaching that when you fast, save the money from fasting and 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 go buy clothing and, and and clothe the naked and buy food. You go without and feed the hungry. Listen. I used to think that was what it meant, but it's not talking about that. Not even remotely. In fact, he summed it up when he said that you hide not yourself from your own flesh. And my God, what's he talking about? When I studied the old men of God that caused revival in their generation, they had one common thread that went through their life. When I studied the people of God that brought revival in a generation, they had a common thread that ran through their life. And the late A.A. E. Allen, he got so hungry for God as an Assembly of God pastor that he kept telling his wife, I'm on a fast. He'd lock himself up because of that insatiable hunger. And she'd go out and fix supper. And the smell would get into the closet where he was praying. And pretty soon the door would open. He'd come out and sit down. She'd feed him. He was embarrassed to say how many times that happened. I would be embarrassed to tell you how many times I started a 40-day fast. And did not finish you got a calculator. <laughs> he did this time after time after time. And one day he was so hungry. He says, I, I can't take it anymore, wife. 
He said, I'm going again. That night she cooked supper. He smelled it. He come out and sat down like usual. She set a bowl of soup in front of him, stew it. He took his spoon, put a mouthful in his mouth, and began to weep. Dropped his spoon. Went back into the closet, locked the door. He doesn't know how long he was in there. No more than William Branham after he lost his family and was devastated, created a vacuum in him. Nobody could fill. And he went up and told his wife, if I don't come back, please, please, he says, I must go. And went up into the woods until a little light appeared behind him about the size of a silver dollar until a full-blown angel was in his presence and gave him a mandate that changed the world. He went back in the closet. He said, I don't know how long I was in there. I don't know. And all of a sudden, a bright light appeared in the closet and it, it was such radiance that it lit the whole closet. And pretty soon a light, a voice spoke out of the light. And it started giving him a list of 13 things to get out of his life. Thirteen. He said, wait a minute, Lord. Wait a minute. And he got a little pencil out of his pocket and it was dull and he sharpened it with his teeth and got a little piece of paper. And the Lord started over and he wrote those thirteen things down. He said the first nine was easy to eradicate. Everybody did them. But the last four took him several years to truthfully before God in clear conscience mark off of the list. But in his testimony, I could feel the power. I could feel it. He said, the night I marked the last one off, I went out and stood before the church and stood before the prayer line and started to pray like I usually do. And all of a sudden, they started going out under the power and miracle after tremendous transformation, miracle took place that launched him into a worldwide ministry that shook the United States as a tent evangelist. Thirteen things. What does it mean that you hide not yourself from your own flesh? I said, Jesus, does that mean that I'm supposed to carry on regular activities with my family and my relatives, like you said in Matthew 6, to wash my face and not appear as a man to be fasting, but you'll see and reward me openly. No, he's talking about when you're locked into daily affairs of life and you can't get away, don't use it as an excuse not to fast. So he wasn't saying... He wasn't saying hide because Paul commanded that if you want to separate from your wife for a time and lock yourself away for a season of fasting and prayer, he said it's a good thing. Then come back together. So Paul advocated separation and the Bible wouldn't contradict itself. So what does he mean to hide not yourself from your own flesh? I can tell you exactly what he means. Why does a missionary have to come in, put their projector up, and show you seven-year-old kids dragging their two-year-old sisters through the garbage jumps of Calcutta to get you to renew your pledge? 
What ugly thing? Is it on the inside of you that won't let you clothe the naked and feed the hungry? What is it that's in you? When he said that you hide not yourself from your own flesh, what he is saying is that fasting will cause you to not only face those ugly things that won't feed the hungry and clothe the naked, but it will cause you to put them to death. Let's take it further. You want to take it further? Don't worry. The devil would dance for glee if you didn't hear this. You catch a hold of this, you're going to fool with his kingdom. Why do people have to come and beg? What is it that's in us that's so carnal that we're indifferent? When He commanded that you hide not yourself from your own flesh, He says, this is the fast that I've chosen, that you break those hideous yokes off of yourself. You think this city, you think this city is going to heaven by itself? You're the only hope she's got. You don't have a right to turn around and put the responsibility on someone else. You're her only hope. What is it in you that doesn't care? You're going to hide yourself from your own flesh. Are you coming face to face? When I went into my first fast, and I've fasted. And I'd never say this is why I'm so shocked the Lord has moved me in and told me to do this tonight. I'm so shocked. You can't tell me you can't fast and carry on activities. I have taught twice a day through longer fasts and ministered to hundreds of people. Don't tell me. First, don't tell me. But the first one I went on, I locked myself away because I didn't know what to expect. And I came out of it with a certain amount of glee and joy. It was great. All God did was visited me on it. Just visited me. Gave me revelation knowledge. I don't think, boy, this is good stuff. So I went into another one. After the first one, I noticed my life didn't change much. Had a good time. Give me some revelation knowledge. Seemed to be a little closer to the Lord. I went into another one. And when I come out of it, I thought, what did I do? I said, what, what did I do wrong, God? I, I locked myself away in fasting and prayer. Now I come out of this thing and I'm afraid of everything. I'm full of fear, intimidation, torment. At least before, I kept it under control. And now it's surface level. I said, what's the matter with me? It seemed like I was in such torment that I didn't get any relief almost unless I would not even thought about going into a closet and praying. And it got worse and worse. And out of pure instinct, I went into another one. And that's when something happened. 
Something died. And coming out of that one, that's when God began to minister to me. I said, boy, the devil really fought me on that last one. He says, no, that wasn't the devil. He says, I was bringing out of the inside of you what you were capable of and putting it to death. You weren't hiding from your own flesh, so I was putting it to death. This preacher fasted 40 days in Norway. At the end of it, he left his wife. He heard me teach, and he says, you mean to tell me that that wasn't the devil fighting me when I left my wife? He got an apartment for three months before they reconciled because all of a sudden his wife wasn't righteous enough. She wasn't this. She wasn't perfect enough. She didn't love the ministry enough. Everything was wrong with her. All he was doing was looking in a mirror. He said, you mean to tell me that what I was capable of was what surfaced and God was putting to death. I said, you got it, my friend. You're not going to fast 40 days, 30 days, 21 days and come out of it worse than you went in. The reason he pulled them real deep flesh characteristics out and put them on the table because you were never more full of the power to crucify them. He said, it took us three months to get back together. You mean, you mean I was capable of that the whole time? I said, it's better now than when you rule over maybe 10,000 preachers in your organization and then have that ugly thing rise up. It's better to put it to death, to face yourself, to hide not yourself from your own flesh, because fasting will start putting the things of the flesh to death, and sometimes they don't want to die, and they'll kick and scream in their death throes. Don't want to die. And when you start feeling the resistance, that's the time not to quit because you're about to have the equivalency of a meltdown. Them things are going to die once and for all. You're going to remove that subtle ceiling of unbelief that's dominated your life and your life and your faith is going to begin to soar to the next level. Whew. My grandpa hated my daddy. My father abandoned me when I was two. Abandoned my mom. Abandoned the rest of us. He was a PK, preacher's kid, and I didn't know that until I had answered the call and was preaching that my grandpa was a tent evangelist. I didn't know that. I answered the call and the other side of my family told me that I was so amazed that my own father was a PK. And my grandpa hated him because he made his living robbing small gas stations and grocery stores. He was a thief. And he'd come running home at times and slit the mattress, crawl inside of the mattress, burn the cotton. The police had ransacked the house. They'd search everything. And then they couldn't find him. And grandpa hated him so when he abandoned us and spent most of his life in jail, we went to live with Grandpa when I was in the fourth grade. And I know I must look like my dad, because as I grew up into my teen years, 9, 10, 11, 12, then 13, 14, I would go out because Grandpa was Missouri, and we'd get a place, he'd build the whole place, fences, garages, barns, 
And everybody worked. Everybody. And he'd get me to go and he'd be holding a board and he'd say, get me that hammer. And then there's something about pressure. Because I knew what was coming. I couldn't see it. And they wouldn't meant to be anything else on that table but a hammer. I couldn't see it. And the longer it would take me to see it, the, the louder he would scream until I'd panic. And the next thing, he'd come charging over. He'd throw the board down and start cussing me. And he'd come over and kick me so hard my teeth would rattle. And that instilled some kind of fear and intimidation in me for authority that even when God began to exalt me, He couldn't take me any further into peace. And even when I'd stand on the platform with some of the world's greatest evangelists, I was so intimidated that I would always be jostling for their approval. Please, throw me a little tidbit Make me feel like I have done okay. Even when He exalted me. And when I went through that last seeking time, I didn't know what was wrong. Torment, fear, ungodly pressure came. I didn't know that He was putting them to death and they were kicking like a mule in their death throes. I came out on the other side and could only explain what I had as the most unsettling peace that I didn't know could exist. And I finally labeled it as aggressive peace. Aggressive peace. And it doesn't matter what God calls me to do in the size of the revival or what city or if I'm sitting in a jail cell. If you have that kind of peace, you're unmanageable by the devil. came out of that thing with peace and God pulled me into that room and He started talking to me and teaching me some things we've been talking about today. He said, did you know that nobody can intimidate you or hurt you if you didn't give them the authority to do it? I thought, I've been so stupid. My goal is to somehow turn you over to the Holy Ghost so He can turn you over to Jesus until you become so complete in Him that your dependency is not upon man, but upon Him. And they can put you in that coal mine in Siberia and you can smile and say, I am complete in Him. (laughs) He is my sufficiency. Why? Because fasting executes the positional truth that your body has been declared. And he's talking about the carnal forces of the flesh of lusts and fears and intimidations and cares and heresies because he will put them to death. Well, I'd like to see what Jesus said. I am so glad you said that. (laughs) Go to the ninth chapter of Matthew, and then we'll finish tonight. Fourteenth verse of Matthew 9. Let's look at it. Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, 
<laughs> Why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then you shall fast. And Jesus was saying, I'm the head of the church. I am with you. You're my disciples. I'm the bridegroom. The anointing is on me. But the day will come that I will be taken away. And then notice what He said. And then shall my followers, my disciples, fast. He didn't say maybe if, possibly if they felt like it. In the future sometime, if the opportunity arose, fast. He said, my disciples in that day shall fast. And the disciple is a disciplined follower. He said, in that day he shall fast. But here's the part I didn't understand. Did you know that Jesus was still answering their question in the next verse, 16, when He said, No man putteth a piece of new cloth onto an old garment, for that which is put in to fill it up takes away from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break and the wine runneth out and the bottles perish, but they put new wine into new bottles and both are preserved. Now all of that's very good, except what has it got to do with fasting? I mean, they ask him a question. They said, John's disciples fast off, but your disciples, they don't fast at all. And Jesus said, I'm the anointing. I'm here, and as long as I'm with them, they don't need to fast. But the day will come, I'll be taken away, then they'll fast. And then he says, and do you want to know why? Because <laughs> no man puts new wine in old bottles. <laughs> that makes about as much sense as the preachers I heard preaching on it. No man puts new cloth, old garment. Why? Because the new patch is strong, and when you sew it onto the old rotten one, it'll give away at the stitches and rent it. But now, all of this is very fine, except that what kind of answer is that to why don't you fast? He says, because you don't put new wine in old bottles. You put new wine in new bottles. Is what he means when he says, if you hide the word, in the midst of your heart. You can ponder it. You can meditate it. Day and night. That verse was lodged in here for six years. Ever since my days in Medford. I passed through it. And I said, what does it mean? I asked those that seemed to be somewhat among them. Oh, well, a guy has to be born again before he can receive the wine of the Holy Spirit. You've got to be born again before you can... You can't put new wine in an old skin. You've got to be born again so you've got to, to receive the baptism. That's funny, though. I mean, 
Poor Jesus, he didn't have enough sense. You know, he teaches on entirely something else. On both sides of those two verses, then suddenly just stops and says, <laughs> Look, you have to be saved to get the Holy Ghost. That's great, Jesus. That's tremendous, Jesus. That's, my God, that's deep. So what was he saying? Then what was he saying? And when it dawned on me, I felt so stupid. For six years, that was locked in my spirit. And the day it came forth, it came forth enough where my spirit understood it first. But my brain was too carnal to analyze it. I knew it in here. I couldn't get it out of here. And he goes, I think so. I think so. I said, all right. I think it has something to do with this. He says, it could. <laughs> I couldn't articulate. But buddy, when the day star rose in my quiet place, after peace, I articulated. If Christ is in you, the body's been positioned and declared dead because of sin, or you're still wearing a body that's been given to you by the first Adam. Not the last Adam, Christ Jesus. The first Adam. That's why it's capable of sinning. And He says, let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body. Even though I'm wearing a body that was given by the first Adam, an old wineskin, an old garment, I possess a spirit that's entered into Zoe, God kind of life and seated in a heavenly place with Christ Jesus. And He said, when I'm gone, in that day you'll fast. For no man puts new wine in an old bottle, but he goes out and buys a new wine skin. And you fast for the same reason the man goes out and buys the new wine skin, because it will fortify and put it to death and cause the power to be able to be sustained within him. He said, you'll fast for the same reason a man don't put an old patch, new patch, old garment. Why? For the same reason that if you're going to patch an old garment, you might as well put an old patch on it. A new garment, a new patch. For the same reason, you'll fast. The fasting will fortify and strengthen the flesh. And just like a new wineskin can last the duration of the ferment process without busting, he said, the fasting will sustain your old wineskin and cause it to be like it was new to sustain the power it will put everything to death that would destroy the precious anointing and cause the wineskin to break and spill out. It will sustain the old wineskin that she burst not.